Hey guys, thanks for tuning in again to episode 145 of Coming Up Next. Thanks for downloading or for streaming the show, however you're listening to this show. Thanks for tuning in. You know, the show comes to you for free each and every week on a Tuesday in uh, in Australia. And the show stays free and I really appreciate your support. And the best way that you can continue to support the show is by subscribing to the show and by rating and, uh, and leaving reviews for the show on iTunes. You can do all of that through comingupnext.com.au where there are links to Podbean, to Stitcher and of course to iTunes where you can do said subscribing, reviewing and rating of the show. Thank you to last week's guest. Thank you to John Belitsky for opening the doors, opening the blinders to what he's doing in New York City with Demanda. Uh, if you haven't checked it out, you can find that as well at uh, comingupnext.com.au as well as the entire back catalogue of podcast rambles. This week, I welcome Mary Poplin to the chat cave. She's a, a VFX master, I would say. Um, she started off as a paint artist um, and moved into being a depth artist. She's going to explain uh, uh, what what that means and uh, tell you all about her career through visual effects. She's worked on some amazing projects. Um, but I'm not going to go on too much because I'm going to give it to you instead. Here it is, episode 145 of Coming Up Next, the podcast with Mary Poplin. You know, usually when I go to research uh, people, there's a plethora of information about the person's life and career and history and where they grew up and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, I guess um, people who work in post-production are often somewhat of the unsung heroes of the whole filmmaking process. Um, so I wonder if you wouldn't mind just sort of telling me where you where you grew up and how you sort of came to be working in, in visual effects. Um, sure. So I'm originally from a place called uh, Loganville, Georgia, which is, um, if you've ever heard a phrase called Where's Loganville, which you probably won't have. It's kind of a local southeastern commercial thing. But that was uh, that was my grandpa. He was a pretty well-known car salesman in the area. He was kind of like, if you've ever heard of Cal Worthington out in California, he was like the Georgia version of Cal Worthington. And um, anyway, he was super into movies growing up, uh, when I was growing up. And uh, he would always take me to the movies. And uh, I decided I wanted to be an animator. And fast forward uh, to a very like artistic childhood, I decided in college that I wanted to uh, go into a field of either illustration or animation, and I went to the Savannah College of Art and Design, which is a great school. Um, it's a little expensive, and, um, and certainly they take a lot of people, uh, but what you, you get out of it, what you put into it. And uh, for me, I decided after some classes that animation was not really my thing it's a little tedious for me like it's it's very creative but I'm not really into rotoscoping and I'm not really into animation itself I kind of like to 
make the signature look pieces and move on from there. I, I don't want to like spend a lot of time on the nitty gritty details and animation is all about nitty gritty details um, and not your overall broad look. So I went down the illustration path and I learned how to do illustration in an apartment that was full of, I don't want to say grognards, but I do want to say grognards. Like I just don't want to, I don't want to. What's a grognard? It's like a, it's kind of like a Luddite, you know, mm-hmm. it's, um, it's a it's a word from um, stranger in a strange land. Uh, so I'll uh, I'll let your your users <laughs> look that one up. But that's beside the point. The point is, is I had a lot of professors who were not very into computers, and um, my uh, the counterpoint to my grandfather was my grandmother, um, who was this woman who always knew just enough about computers to be dangerous. And um, so she, when I was when I was in school, you know, she got me a computer. Like the minute those Apple green screen things came out, she got me a computer. And me and my sister, I have a twin sister, we would like work on that thing, you know, all day long. And we did the, you know, those, the math muncher games and all that, you know, the, what is it, uh, Oregon Trail stuff. And eventually I decided um, that, you know, I wanted to make my own websites and like, you know, do my own artwork and like scan and, you know, uh, make my own pictures and all that kind of stuff. And so when I went to college, um, my professors were not really into that. Uh, they were more about your, um, your traditional skills, which I like both. And uh, I would do projects with my digital skills, and I'd actually get some pushback from my professors, so I decided to go into the computer art department. And um, from there, I graduated with a degree in illustration, but I had um, a lot of computer art department classes under my belt. And eventually, I moved out to California, and um, in California, I got a job um, doing this, uh, basically working on this animation called Barnyard, the original party animals, which is a Steve Odekart creation. It's not an amazing movie, but it was my start, you know, and they, they really believed in me. Um, they gave me like right out of college, a job doing all of their marketing work. I did all of their posters for their movies and all of their uh, marketing materials, um, frame cleanups. Um, Phil Cruden, um, was an old school veteran from, um, the Warner Brothers studios and worked on like, uh, Anastasia and all that stuff. And he, Uh, took me under his wing in the art department and gave me like color keys to do. So I was like mapping out like, you know, the color hits of the movie and what the tone would be, you know, and doing the emotional highlights for that. And uh, he had me do some matte paintings and, um, and then the marketing work started to dry up. And so they sat me in front of a computer and they said, look, you can paint. um, But have you ever used combustion? And I said, no. And they said, okay, well, here's a computer. Here's a license of combustion. And you have a thousand frames of paint due at the end of the week. (laughs) (laughs) and uh and so i uh i definitely will not say that was easy i had uh i had some tears at my desk moments um but uh, i learned how to do it um and i got my shots done that week and uh, and i kept doing it and i learned how to composite and fusion um i learned a lot about after effects you know which i'd already known a little bit about but not you know not a movie amount and I'd already known a lot about Photoshop, but like the After Effects and Fusion things were really helpful. And I started moving into compositing. Um, I went to Cafe FX from there and started doing matte paintings for them. And uh, I did a ton of matte paintings for them. I worked in the Kite Runner with them. And then for a while, I freelanced around uh, Los Angeles working for various studios. And then the last studio I was at, um, I was working on uh, Marvel films and um, and other films uh, like Gulliver's Travels and The Last Airbender with a company called Stereo D, where I was doing stereo conversion. Um, and a guy named Aaron Perry, who is a wonderful man, um, I worked with him actually at Omation um, with my original work. He hired me to do a lot of their uh, stereo conversion over there. And then, um, what does sorry, what does stereo conversion mean? 
So stereo conversion is um, it's a process where you take a two uh, just a two dimensional image, and um, it's already you know, it's the final frames of a film, and then you go in and you add what's called stereo depth to that. You are you're doing the depthing process, and to do that, a lot of times there's well there's tons of different techniques. Okay, but essentially what it means is you're probably going to be in ending up creating a sort of projection map on top of a uh, bump map displaced image and adding two cameras to the image so that you get a left eye and a right eye. Um, so you're basically turning one eye, which is your computer, you know, your computer eye into two eyes. So you're making it a left and right. Uh, uh, let, me, let, me, let me repeat how to say that because I feel like I'm stumbling over myself. Sure. So you take your 2D image and what you're going to do is you're going to turn that into two different eyes, a left eye and a right eye to create your stereo depth. To do that, you usually use a depth mat and that's how you process it. So it's like a projection map and then two eyes are created from two different cameras. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay, because the way stereo cameras normally work is you have to have two cameras and they're offset and they're both looking at an image. The disparity between those two eyes is what creates your 3D depth. Gotcha. So uh, so I worked on that and um, and then I was working there and Martin Brind, our product manager, actually came by uh, to give a demo on Mocha. And we got to talking, and we're both giant nerds, um, just hugely giant nerds. And we started talking about like video games and um, and this thing I do called LARPing and like tabletop role playing games. And uh, he asked me if uh, if I was looking for work, and I said yeah, I was, because uh, adept thing was not really my thing. You know, it was just sort of a gig in the meantime. And then Mocha hired me, and I've been the product specialist for Mocha for gosh, like seven years now. And it's been it's been kind of a you know careers. I feel like take a windy path. It's basically like a whole bunch of kind of like improv. You know, when you say yes and or yes but, like you know, with careers, I feel like you want to say yes as much as possible, and then it takes you different places. Yeah, and you can't quite predict which thread's gonna take you where. Exactly. You know, I would say because of my roto paint background um, from where I came from originally with Omation, you know, I tend to stick towards like beauty work and like invisible work in my visual effects. Um, but I'm kind of a generalist. I'm not really good at 3D, but I can do it if you force me to. Um, <laughs> it's not, not my favorite thing in the world, but um, but you can do some cool stuff with it. Um, and, uh, you know, you can do some cool stuff with particle systems and things like that. But uh, but my thing that I enjoy the most tends to be matte paintings and um, and your invisible paintwork, which is, you know, all of your beauty work and your retouching and your, you know, uh, taking a beautiful blue sky and putting clouds in it, you know, to make a moody scene. Like stuff that people don't really realize is like the bread and butter of the visual effects world. That's what I like to do. So you mentioned earlier about, you know, coming to discover that you really liked animation um, and what you would do with your sister and 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 whatnot but I remember uh, I wonder if you remember the first time that you had an interaction with this um, this idea or this I guess career in, in some form maybe it was as a kid or something um, growing up what what was the first kind of connection point that you remember to this world I, I would watch well children's books and Disney films and you know um your your 2D cartoony side of things. I loved the uh, older Disney movies like um, Sleeping Beauty, and I really enjoyed um, books like, especially like the Shel Silverstein books, which had some really simple drawings in them, um, like uh, where the sidewalk ends and the Giving Tree and all that kind of stuff. 
I really liked copying what I saw. So I would watch animations or I would read children's books and I would copy down what I saw and I would like, you know, copy other people's artwork until I started making my own artwork. So when I started figuring out that I could make my own work, that's what sort of inspired me to go down this career path. And, and so do you remember what the first sort of things that you were making? Was it like that you were just kind of drawing or, um, or creating characters or were you actually creating sort of concise stories or do you remember what that was? Uh, when I was about 12 or so, I started creating concise characters and um, I would make them with my sister. Like she had a character and I had a character um, and uh, we would actually like role play those characters online and then we would draw out their adventures, and eventually um, we made another friend uh, named Dax Martin. Uh, I really, I don't know if you uh, you know Dax, but Dax was uh, just most recently on um, RuPaul's Drag Race, and uh, he's been our friend for forever. But he, we would uh, get together and we draw comics of our story characters, like together. We just like, you know, he would have sketchbooks full of his character, and like me and Margaret would have sketchbooks full of our characters, and we'd get together and you know, get in. Get, basically get into trouble um, online in these uh, <laughs> IRC chat rooms, you know, like, you know, describing our adventures and then we draw them out. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's very dorky. I like, I, I, I wish I was like, I had a cooler story, but it's instead it's just straight up nerdery and role playing. Like that's, that's my original like <laughs> start in making actual creations. Did anyone get slapped with a large trout? No. No. But they probably should have. <laughs> right. <laughs> so is this kind of the uh, the foundations also of your LARPing? Yeah, absolutely it is. Well, see, originally with LARPing, I, um, I don't, for those of you that don't know that are listening, um, LARPing is live action role playing. And it is, um, it's basically like if you took a and d game and instead of rolling dice, you dressed up like your characters and put on elf ears and like hit each other with foam swords. So it's basically hitting your friends with sticks in an elaborate game of tag. Um, and uh, <laughs> it's a lot of fun, but it's really dorky. And, um, and the first time I ever LARPed, I was 19 and um, a friend of mine, uh, he had been playing this LARP called Solar, the Southern Organization of Live Action Role Playing over in Georgia. And um, he begged me for his birthday. He was like, the only thing that I'm asking for for my birthday is for you to come LARP with me. And I was like, well, that is a nasty trick. How can I say no to that? You know, I didn't really want to go. It sounded really lame. And like, I went and like the first night it took me a, a minute to get in. But like by morning, you know, after like running through the woods for my imaginary life. I, uh, I was totally in and I've been playing ever since. So I am, um, in my mid thirties now, uh, <laughs> and I'm, uh, I'm still LARPing. So I've been doing it for, um, like over, over 15 years. It sounds like a lot of fun. So I guess just to go back to your, you and your career, when you were, going through school, uh, were your parents supportive of this, you know, kind of um, blossoming creative endeavor? Mm, that is a tricky question. It's like the answer is yes and no. So I'll, I'll elaborate a little bit. Um, my, uh, my mom and, um, and my, uh, my dad are split up. So, you know, we, we led very different lives uh, from my dad. So neither one of them were really super into me being an artist. And then, my grandparents um, 
were not really in the idea of me being an artist as a career either. Like they were happy to nurture like any skill that I wanted um, while I was exploring stuff. So like when I was a kid, you know, like I got in ceramics and like, you know, my grandma got me a kiln and stuff to work with, you know, um, and, you know, we would work in clay and like we would work on paintings and like, you know, we would take charcoal out of the fireplace and do drawings, you know. And so in that way, yes, they were super supportive. But when I started to get towards college age and it became apparent that I wanted to do this as a career, um, they were not thrilled about it. You know, um, like my grandpa, my grandpa, like took me around to various colleges to go on tours and like specifically, you know, did not want to tour the art department, you know, um, they wanted me to do something that they thought was like more of a, uh, money-making, uh, job. And, um, but, uh, when I, when I got accepted to Savannah College of Art and Design, um, you know, they helped me, you know, go to that school. They, you know, I got scholarships and stuff, but they helped me with the majority of the costs and, um, they were 100% behind me after I made it clear that I was doing it, but, uh, definitely, they tried to talk me out of it every step of the way, but once I committed, they were all over, you know, being as supportive as you would want any of your family members to be. And I guess, you know, what was it like to for you to then step into, because I would imagine that at school it was a more kind of academically driven education. What was it then like for you to step into a more creatively driven education? Not really very different. and And here's why. Uh, I'm kind of left brain, right brain, like, you know, and, and by the way, like art schools still have your core curriculum that you have to take to be at an accredited college. So I still had to take math and like, you know, I had to take anatomy and I, you know, I had to take actual classes like English, you know, public speaking, stuff like that. Um, and, uh, but the art class side of things, um, weren't really that different. Like everything had a ton of homework, you know, um, I've never had as much homework and late nights, uh, as I had in college, like, like if you wanted to get a good education out of SCAD, you put the work in and the work was hard. Like there was a lot of stuff to do, you know, and I think a lot of times the, the premise is that art school is like, oh, it's a breeze, you know, but it's not, you know, you have projects due every week and, and those projects, you know, you usually only have a day or two to complete. So when it's, when it all adds up, you know, cause you've got, if you're taking a full class load, you know, the homework is pretty incredible. So I don't feel like it was, I don't feel like the education part was very different because I tend to approach education the same way across the board. Like I'm very visual with my learning. Um, so, you know, I need, I need to read it and I need to see it and I, you know, I need to see pictures and diagrams and stuff like that, even when I'm learning things like math. So, um, for art, when you're doing, you know, when, for instance, when you're trying to, uh, figure out the perspective on something or you're trying to figure out the proportions on something that's all actually geometry you know so you're looking at it in the same visual way and you still have to approach it from the same angle and you still have to do the same amount of work it's just creativity I don't always buy that creativity is something different than work you know like it's all it's all work you don't you don't have a muse really you have to you your muse won't come unless you put in the work does that make sense yeah absolutely so you got to get the ball rolling yourself. Yeah. You can't sit around and wait for inspiration, you know? So like, so with, with school, with having to do, you know, with having to do paintings as, as work that had to be done, you know, I didn't get to sit around and be like, 
Well, creatively, I feel like I should, you know, wait for the muse to strike me and see what tickles my fancy. You know, you have to sort of look at the world around you, um, look at what you talked about in class, look at what's going on in your life, and then you have to produce work based on what you know, you know, or what you hope to know or what you're trying to find out about yourself. Yeah, and I think that's uh, applicable across the board in terms of any creative endeavor, which I think is what you're saying. Yes, as someone who has gone to art school and then, you know, had some fairly, you know, you had the kind of baptism of fire that you mentioned before with the thousand art pieces in a week, um, yeah. would would you advocate for going to college or, or do you think it's better to just go out into the real world and get practical experience? How would you, what would your kind of take on that argument be? I think college shows that you are able to complete something in a concise amount of time and shows that you are driven to do things. I think college also shows that you perhaps come from a privileged background, like because not everybody can go to college and not everybody can afford to, especially the way like schools are going now. Um, Like Savannah College of Art and Design, for example, is already way more expensive now than it was when I went, like by orders of magnitude more. So I don't know how people do it. You know, it was expensive when I went, and I think now it's nearly unattainable unless you have a lot of private funding for, or you just go into debt forever. As far as do I think that college is necessary, I think it depends on the kind of job that you want. If you're going to do a bunch of freelance in your life, I don't know that college is necessary. But if you want to work for like a larger studio, um, or if you want to work, uh, you know, in a leadership position within the studios, um, it's a lot easier to do that if you have the base education to build upon because it's like a credential um but it's only a useless piece of paper if you don't get what you um if you don't put in the work into college and the main thing about college that i think is important and here's why i actually advocate people go to if not a college then a school or education program of like-minded individuals um if you if it can't be an accredited college Um, college is where you meet the connections that you're going to rely on to get your first gigs. So if you're just trying to break into the industry without knowing anyone, um, having no connections, you have no friends or family connected to it, um, you're going to need some inroad. And a lot of times your professors in college are going to be people that have connections in the studios and can place you. You know, um, I know SCAD does that. I know Ringling does that. I know uh, RISD, you know, has um, has connections, you know, that they can use to help you get work. And as long as you are extremely motivated and um, and try to stay in the top of your class, like that's a really good a really good path for you. But if you are not super motivated <laughs> um, or you are not a, a self starter, um, then then a this business might not be for you. And b um, it's going to be hard to break in if you have no connections that you can pull on. Yeah, I think the um, it's certainly a recurring kind of uh, answer, I, I guess, is the people that you meet with when you go to these um, institutions, college or university or, or whatever, uh, you know, the people that you meet are, are, the, are the most significant kind of detail beyond anything that you may learn in the classroom. Right. You can learn stuff anywhere. If you're good at learning, you can learn stuff on your own. Um, But the connections are irreplaceable. So um, now that being said, let's say you are a really good self-starter. You're really good at being self-taught. You've watched every tutorial online. You make amazing work. You have a good portfolio to start with. You've got like a great demo reel. 
you don't have it cut to cheesy music that they're just going to fast forward through anyway. Um, <laughs> let's say you have all that done and, uh, and you have never, you've never gone to a school. Um, you know, you've never gone to Nomon, for example, which is a school in Los Angeles that's doing really well at getting people into the industry. You've never gone to those kinds of schools. Um, what you can do is you can go to local users groups meetings. Um, like I'm doing a talk at LAPBG later this month. Um, that's a good post-production meeting. Uh, Alpha Dogs does a good, um, a good meetup. There's Komi uh, Miyamura runs a, um, a wonderful group um, in Los Angeles as well. Um, it's the Adobe users group. And there's places you can go to meet up with other like-minded individuals so that you can make those connections. The other thing I would say one of the things that really, I know I mentioned that I, you know, I took public speaking at SCAD, but one of the things that really stuck with me from SCAD was they, they did absolutely make you take a, a public speaking class because a lot of times artists uh, tend to be uh, insular in their heads. Um, they're not always very socially gregarious. And if you don't have it in you to be socially gregarious or, or, or if you don't have it in you to make those social connections, you need to work on that as a skill. It's just as important as any creative skill that you could possibly have because the industry is very small and the industry is full of people who want to work with one another. And if you are somebody that people don't want to work with because they can't connect with you, it's going to be very, very hard to find work. Another, another good way to get around that is to start your own podcast and, um, and connect with people. Yes, but see, that's you being self-starting and that's you reaching out and connecting with other people, even though it might not be a skill that you were born with or, you know, uh, that you necessarily have as part of your default personality. Absolutely. What, what, what have you found to be the most significant uh, skills that you have or qualities that you have on that note in kind of evolving your career, you know, from working on smaller films, like you mentioned, Barnyard earlier, you know, up to the kind of bigger scale, you know, the Green Hornet and Gulliver's Travels and, and these kind of bigger productions. You know, I, I, I had a friend that used to joke with me. Um, he said, Mary, I'm, I'm going to open a school. Um, he's autistic um, and he's, uh, he's not really very good at uh, social stuff. He's had to learn how to be out of a book. Um, that's like how he learns and that's, he's actually become very social doing it, but it's not default for him. He said, Mary, I'm going to run a school for other people like me. And I want you to come teach a class and I want it to be called, uh, go get a drink with your effing coworkers. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, yeah, that's a, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good call there. His name is David Shorey. Uh, he's a great guy. And, um, he really hit the nail on the head there. That's the best thing I can say to people is like, you know, once you get that job, once you, I shouldn't have clapped and talked at the same time. Uh, once you get that job, what you want to do is uh, you want to make sure that you are connecting with people that you enjoy. You know, a lot of times people look at social connection um, as this thing that's fake. Um, and, and what I do, what works for me, and this is not going to work for everybody, but what works for me is I find people who like the things that I like, um, who have a similar work ethic to what I have, um, people that I feel like I can, I can connect with easier and I gravitate towards those people. And then for the people that I don't connect with, um, I invite, I invite them out with us wherever we're going, you know? So, um, so what I'm saying is, 
uh, you don't have to make friends with everyone and be everybody's best friend, but like do your best to include people, you know, do your best to, to be open-minded and hear people out. Um, do your, do your best, even though you don't want to, you're not, you don't want to be best friends with somebody that you're not going to get along with, but you don't want to cut them out of your life either. You know, the other thing that I find that's really successful for me, other than just going out and getting a drink with my coworkers and making sure that like, you know, I'm, I'm actually like connecting with other humans is that I learned to like doing that, even though it takes a lot of energy. Um, I feel very drained once I'm done in social situations. Everybody tells me I'm an extrovert, but it's not actually true. Most people are actual ambiverts. There's very few people are true extroverts or true introverts. Most people are ambiverts. And for most people, um, interacting with strangers and people that you don't know very well is work. It takes um, a mental and emotional labor, um, mental and emotional labor to connect with other people. So you don't always want to do that. So when I'm, when I'm out and I have to be on, I go home and I'm exhausted. You know, I don't actually get energy from doing that. And everybody thinks I do. Um, so I've had to work at enjoying that, you know, and trying to make that part of my life. Yeah. So I guess it's about creating a culture of inclusion and not being so cynical about, um, the way that you're interacting with people, but, uh, but, but going there, like you say, you know, and, and, and finding those points of commonality. Right. And it's also about just saying yes. I said this earlier about the career thing, but it's again, it's saying yes. Don't say yes too much. Don't say yes so much that you don't have any time for yourself left, you know, but if somebody asks you, if you want to go get a drink with them later, say yes you know, if somebody asks you if you want to hang out, you know, say yes. If somebody asks you if you want to be the sound guy on their piddling little project they're working on on the side, you know, say yes. You never know where that could lead. It could lead you somewhere super fun. How do you look at, um, you know, jobs that you've done? How, how do you define them as being successful? Honestly, I think a successful job is one that got completed and I got paid for. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So, I mean, I, I, I know that's like, that's not a very art farty, um, you know, answer, but, uh, but for me, that's my, it's a very busy industry and ideally you work on projects that are, you know, I don't know, the last Jedi every time you're touching something, but unfortunately that's not the way it works. You know, not everything is going to be a Black Panther, a last Jedi, you know, a, uh, a Doctor Strange, you know. There's going to be all these product uh, products in between that you're working on and that you're you're helping move, and uh, they're not always going to be amazing. You know, I worked on a movie called um, I'm not going to say what it was called. Let's say I worked on an animation <laughs> that was a bomb to begin with, right. and um, and I worked on it and I got paid and I met a lot of cool people and I worked with some people that I I really enjoyed working with from the past and we had a great time, but it was. A piece of garbage. Yeah. I would still say it's successful, though, because it helped me pay for my mortgage. <laughs> well, that is a very important uh, marker of success. Yes. There's certainly a lot of people who work in the entertainment industry who can't pay their mortgages. Right. Well, so that's another conversation entirely, right? Like, you got to charge what you're worth. Mm. You know, I don't have trouble finding work, and I charge decent rates. And if more people did that, more people would make decent rates. Well, there's a lot of people, uh, you know, I, I've worked as a, uh, you know, freelance shooter, producer and editor as well. And, 
you know, it's uh, it's it's difficult when you're going in with the rate that you think represents your value, and then there are people who are, you know, coming in with a rate of fifteen percent of that just to get the job or something like that. Sure, it is difficult, but those people almost never finish. And here's my experience with those people. Um, when I have somebody that undercuts my rates so incredibly low um, that they give the job to the other person, I cannot tell you how many times that person has then come back and I've gotten the job anyway because they let that other person work on it. That other person did a substandard job because that other person has completely not budgeted enough time and, and not budgeted their actual value into the job itself. Like just paying less for a job doesn't mean it's going to be done or done well. Um, and I've had to rescue so many projects last minute um, just because they gave it to somebody that worked at a cheaper rate and they ended up having to pay me a rush fee just to get it done in the first place plus my original rate. Yeah. Yeah, there's a great analogy I heard about, you know, hiring a plumber where it was, um, you know, you hire a plumber, you pay them $100 for an hour. One, one, one comes who's got one year of experiences, uh, one year of experience and he takes an hour to fix the, the sink. Uh, another one comes who's got 10 years of experience and takes two minutes to fix the same sink and they both get paid $100. One's been paid $100 for an hour, one's been paid $100 for two minutes. Yes. You, but the reason that you're paying that premium is because you know, of the 10 years of experience, the 10 years that it's taken to be able to do the same job in a more efficient way. Exactly. I mean, I've been working in visual effects for over 10 years now. So, um, you know, people will give me a, a shot to finish that's like, that most people would consider hard and I can do it pretty fast. But I can only do it fast because I've been doing shots like that for 10 years. Yeah. And I think that in creative fields and f through a lot of people who I've spoken with, because of the culture of of the arts, it becomes very uh, a very vulnerable place to put a true value on you know what you think your work your work is worth. Yes, but what I like to do is I like to um, figure out what I want to make an hour, and give a rough estimate of how many hours a project's going to take me, and that's including like if I have to get a you know if I have to get the footage, you know, if I have to like, you know, um, convert it to something like all of the tedious side work too, I, I factor all of that in. Um, and then I look at how much time it's going to take me on the computer itself, you know, um, how much of my computer is going to be used up by render times, all that kind of thing. And I project, I put all that into the price of what I think the job should be. And, um, and if somebody's not willing to pay that, like, I just move on to the next project. I don't do a whole lot of freelance anymore anyway because I don't have the time to. So I make sure that my, I make sure that my prices are the kind of thing that only make it worth my while to, to work overtime for. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, I think it's really, it's a really great kind of um, topic to kind of, uh, you know, understand what one's value is and to really be able to harness that and be unapologetic about it. Yeah, and you don't you don't have to be you don't have to be a jerk about it, but certainly be like I'm sorry, that's my rate. I actually had to I had to do that to somebody the other day. They um they wanted me to do a project, and um I told them I could do a 2D solution, um that would be inexpensive that they could use, or they could hire somebody for a 3D solution because it wasn't going to be me to do it. And they were like, but we really need it done, and we need it done for this, and we need a 3D solution, and you know, and we need it, we need it for the Sundance Film Festival, and you know, and I was like, okay. I appreciate that you need it. I suggest that you either raise the money to budget what you need for it or you settle for a cheaper solution. One of the two. I'm happy to accommodate you either way, 
but you're either going to have to hire a 3D artist to do what you want, or we can do a cheat. And mm. they were like, and they they ended up, I think, having to pay a 3D guy to do it because they weren't okay with doing a little 2D cheat um, on the cheap. So it's just you gotta you gotta figure out when you make your film what the budget needs to be. And I think a lot of times people don't go through their script with a VFX supervisor, and I don't think they realize what stuff is going to cost once they're done shooting. Like mm. they don't think about the the effects parts at the end. Obviously, bigger studios do. Mm. Um, well, thank you so much for uh, for chatting with me, Mary. I really appreciate your your insights into uh, into a world that I haven't really um, delved into myself. Um, and you've actually just given me a line item for a budget that I was working on that I wasn't uh, considering. So. Oh, really? <laughs> um, I uh, I finish all of my podcasts with the same question. A question is, what makes you silly? What makes me silly? Oh gosh. Um, I feel like we covered that earlier in the conversation. <laughs> um, probably, probably the, the dorky role-playing aspect of things. Um, I think what makes me silly is, uh, you know, I'm an, I'm a normal person with like, you know, normal, normal nerd things that I'm into. And, uh, and, and I think what makes me silly is, uh, embracing those things about myself. Um, I'm not trying to prove anything to anyone. I'm, I'm me. I'm a, I'm a goofy person. I'm a little awkward. Um, I'm, you know, I'm a little loud. I talk a lot. Some people don't like my voice, you know, and I just sort of get over that and sort of embrace the goofy, um, the goofy side of myself that is into things like, uh, dressing like a half troll or, you know, uh, (laughs) putting on undead makeup and running around the woods with my friends with Nerf guns. Um, and, uh, and if I, if I couldn't do that, you know, um, I, I feel like I'd be taking myself way too seriously. Have you always been able to kind of be, be that, um, be that way about yourself or has it, you know, taken a bit of time to get there? Do you know, I opened this, um, this conversation with talking about my grandpa who took me to see movies and stuff all the time, um, before he passed. And he was, uh, he was a guy who like was mortifying to be in public with because whatever embarrassment bone that most people are born with, um, he didn't have it at all. So um, you'd be in the middle of a restaurant and he would burst out singing at the top of his voice. (laughs) What a legend. Oh my God. Yeah, like you have no idea. Like the man was, he was a wild man. He, uh, He wore a suit every day with a bow tie and white tennis shoes. I mean, he was, he was a nut. Uh, he's a car salesman, you know, and like, uh, and like nothing flapped him, you know, like he just, he, everything was his way or the highway all day long. And I would, I would say that being around that, um, my whole life was really inoculating against the kinds of things that make you upset that other people say. And I was a really nerdy kid. Like I had a perm that my mom gave me like in the eighties. I looked like a poodle, you know, um, I walked on the hallway and people barked at me, you know, like, I mean, people were not nice to me growing up Mm. and I decided to be nice anyway. And it wasn't always easy to do. You know, um, I think I was a lot angrier and more closed off when I was a teenager. Um, and you know, and obviously preteens and eventually, uh, I got to where I just don't care 
Um, so it allows me to be goofy. So no, I would not say I started off that way, but like, but I certainly had a really good um, inoculation against embarrassment early on. Oh, that's awesome. And your grandfather sounds like he was a uh, quite a character. He was absolutely a character. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you so much, Mary. Yeah, of course.